I'm in the back of one of the white vans the U.S. Prison Bureau uses to move people to the execution chamber at the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute. We're parked on the edge of woods, somewhere between the security area and the execution chamber. It's hard to know exactly how long we've been here. We don't have phones. It's mid-December, and whatever radio station they're playing appears to have fully transitioned to holiday music. The five of us are sitting there, in the dark, listening to Christmas songs, as the feds work out whatever delay is holding us up this time. Nobody really says anything. I can see the execution chamber in the distance. And a warning, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence, including the sexual assault of a child. Up front, there's a driver and a U.S. Prison Bureau information officer. In the row in front of mine, a New York Times opinion writer is curled up, trying to rest until we receive instructions. In front of her, a local TV reporter is making small talk to pass the time. Three more reporters are in a different van just ahead of us. Splitting us up is the U.S. Prison Bureau's version of social distancing. By the end of 2020, COVID-19 was tearing through prisons, and the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute is one of the worst-hit facilities. Of course, it's not actually possible to stay six feet apart inside a van, or the media area of the execution chamber, which is small and sealed tight. After about an hour of idling, the drivers receive instructions to drop us off in front of the execution chamber, where we join the other van's reporters. We file into the little witness room, and then the curtain comes up. The six of us are face-to-face with Alfred Bourgeois. He's black like most of the people the Trump administration selected that fall and winter. He's heavyset with a white beard. Bourgeois addresses us directly, quote, In no form or fashion did Alfred Bourgeois rape or sexually assault anyone in my whole life, he says, speaking in the third person. He continues, quote, I did not commit this charge. I love my kids. I love you with all my heart, soul, and strength. This is me reading from my notes. He asks God to forgive his sins, but insists that killing or assaulting his infant daughter isn't one of them. More on her in a moment. He prays for his executioners, saying they, quote, know not what they do. And he adds, quote, welcome me into your kingdom. It all begins at 7.53 p.m., again, according to my notes, The prison bureau provided a notepad and a pen when we arrived. There's also a digital clock inside the execution chamber if you know where to look. First, everything appears to be unfolding as usual. But two minutes later, at 7.55 p.m., Bourgeois starts blinking and looking around. I note a look of concern. His stomach rises. I write down the following, quote, Chest heaving, stomach heaving, stomach rising, a yawn. One minute later, his eyes are closed. His mouth is moving. His stomach is heaving. His mouth is moving some more. In all caps, I write, quote, not natural movement. Again, on the next page, not natural. Stomach popping up, heaving inside. At 7.57 p.m., more in all caps, sucking inside middle, still heaving. These are all descriptions of bourgeois torso. Everyone in the room is seeing the same thing, even though prison staff placed a greenish sheet over his body, even though he's tied down to the table. It seems clear that if it weren't for the restraints, he might be flailing around. He eventually stops and his breaths become shallow. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I see a reporter performing the sign of the cross. Otherwise, on our side of the glass, nothing really happens for like half an hour. No movement, no sounds. It's also unusually stuffy in there. Finally, a voice comes over the speaker, quote, Death has occurred at 8.21 p.m. This concludes the execution of inmate Bourgeois. The last thing I write, quote, It's so hot in here. They unlock the door. It's raining. One of the witnesses steps outside into the rain and throws up onto the ground. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, this is Rush to Kill, a podcast about the secretive Midwest facility where the United States carries out all federal executions. From the public radio journalists who cover U.S. death row, I'm George Hale. Mr. Bourgeois is intellectually disabled on the current standards. In 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court barred the government from carrying out death sentences of people with intellectual disabilities. But in its final weeks in office, the Trump administration set dates for two intellectually disabled men. Victor Abreu is representing Alfred Bourgeois in his disability claims. And in fact, the district court in Indiana uh, ruled that we had made a strong showing that Mr. Bourgeois is intellectually disabled on the current uh, diagnostic standards. And our petition is based on that. The Federal Death Penalty Act itself bars the execution of someone who is intellectually disabled. And our petition to the U.S. Supreme Court basically asked the, that court to enforce the plain language of the Federal Death Penalty Act, which bars that execution of somebody who is present tense intellectually disabled. Days before the December executions, I listened as my colleague Adam Pinsker quizzed Abreu about his client. Abreu was speaking over Zoom from New Orleans. Part of the delay is because the U.S. Supreme Court is weighing a request to remand the case for a hearing to determine if Bourgeois meets current standards of intellectual disability. So just for some clarity, the district court in Indiana said you had a strong case based on, on those, those criteria, but the yeah. Seventh Circuit is refusing to hear the case. So, so I guess what, sure. what happens now? A federal judge in Indiana stayed the execution, ruling that Bourgeois was intellectually disabled under current guidelines. The district court found that we, one, made a strong showing that Mr. Bourgeois was intellectually disabled on the current standards and that we were entitled to a stay of execution to prove that in, in court. The government appealed that decision and the Seventh Circuit in a seven to two decision basically found that because we had previously raised the claim of Mr. Bourgeois' intellectual disability um, in uh, the, the district court in Texas, at the time of the initial post-conviction proceedings, we were not entitled to bring another petition at this time. So basically what the Seventh Circuit ruling does is allow somebody who is intellectually disabled to be executed because they, they held that there is no place to bring a, a petition in, in the court at this time. Intellectual disability is in a separate category from mental incompetency, although the two can overlap. In this case, the attorneys were arguing that Bourgeois' IQ was too low to be executed, not that he was severely mentally ill. Certainly someone who is incompetent, meaning that they don't understand the difference between right and wrong or why they're being executed, cannot be executed. People who are intellectually disabled can't be executed either for very specific reasons. Uh, they're morally less culpable because uh, they, they 
um, uh, are, are individuals who, who um, uh, have limited intellect um, and are prone to um, some of the, uh, uh, I don't want to call them abuses, but some of the problems that we see in the criminal justice system, uh, they can be particularly vulnerable in those situations. Uh, Mr. Bourgeois is somebody who has been intellectually disabled, is intellectually disabled his entire life. My colleague and I, we've witnessed several executions. Uh, well, there's been eight now. Um, and we've been in and out of that facility. A number of uh, other attorneys uh, for uh, condemned men who have been executed there have expressed concerns about the COVID-19 pandemic. Are, are you personally surprised? Uh, I know your, your client had come up a year ago or so for execution. Uh, are you surprised that um, this is still taking place with a month before a new administration takes uh, takes over and in the midst of the worst time of the pandemic here? I'm, I'm surprised and I'm concerned, uh, you know, certainly for my own safety and my family's safety. The community should be uh, concerned about um, this rush to execute during a pandemic. Um, certainly I'm concerned about that. Certainly, it's not going to stop me from um, following through on what I believe is my constitutional obligation to Mr. Bourgeois and uh, my client, um, but certainly I'm concerned. I don't necessarily understand the rush to execute, and one of the things that concerns me is anytime you rush to execute, mistakes get made and cases don't get uh, reviewed the way they should be reviewed. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think it is important to, um, to keep in mind, um, you, you know, what is pending in the U.S. Supreme Court right now, because it's an important question. Congress uh, made um, it very clear when it passed the Federal Death Penalty Act that it wanted to preclude and prevent the execution of those who are intellectually disabled. Um, that's plainly written in the statute and it, and it is also what the US Supreme Court said was, was banned by the Eighth Amendment. Um, and uh, rushing to execute Mr. Bourgeois without an opportunity to prove that he is intellectually disabled violates both that Federal Death Penalty Act um, and, and, and the constitutional the constitutional rules the Supreme Court established. So I think that's very, very important. The Supreme Court decided to let the execution proceed. Afterwards, the Prison Bureau distributed two documents to reporters. One was a DOJ statement that said, quote, in 2002, Bourgeois took custody of his two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Over the course of the next several months, he systematically tortured, abused, and likely molested the toddler. On July 27, 2002, the girl was a passenger in Bourgeois' truck during a delivery to the Corpus Christi Naval Air Base. While backing his truck up to a loading dock, his daughter tipped over her potty, enraging Bourgeois, who beat her head against the interior of the truck's cab, inflicting fatal injuries. You know, certainly we've, we've um, contested many of the facts that, that underlie the case, including um, some of the facts that, that undermine the conviction, uh, some of the faulty forensic evidence that the government used. Uh, and introduced, and some of the unreliable forensic evidence um, that the government introduced. Brayu pointed out that at this stage in post-conviction appeals, bourgeois' guilt or innocence isn't really the issue. They were banking on the intellectual disability claim because regardless of his client's technical culpability, he is intellectually disabled. The issue presently before the Supreme Court relies, uh, depends solely on, on a determination of whether Mr. Bourgeois is intellectually disabled under current standards. and um, just by way of context, uh, when the prior decision uh, related to Mr. Bourgeois' intellectual disability was made by the, the Texas District Court, the court employed a bunch of non-scientific standards 
um, and, um, and criteria to, to determine that he wasn't intellectually disabled. After that, the Supreme Court said that the same type of analysis that the court used in Mr. Bourgeois' case was unconstitutional. The execution happened either way. Afterwards, U.S. Prison Bureau officials handed out a typed statement, quote, Jacaron lost her life brutally to a monster who lived for 18 years after the crime. A child should not have to endure what she did then. None of us could have imagined that she would return from a summer visit in a casket. Now we can start the process of healing. It should not have taken 18 years for us to receive justice for our angel. She will forever be loved and missed. We love you, Jaja. From the family of Jacaron Harrison. Of the five executions I witnessed, Bourgeois was the only one who maintained his innocence to the very end. There are some guilty people who, up to the end, insist on their innocence, but there are a lot of innocent people who are just telling the truth. Robert Dunham is a defense attorney and expert on the death penalty. He's former director of the Death Penalty Information Center. He may not have killed his daughter, and they, they have fake evidence that, um, quote, establishes that the child was sexually abused. Yeah. Um, that's fake. Prosecutors told the federal jury that rectal swabs showed evidence of semen, throwing in the possibility he raped his toddler daughter on top of everything else. It turns out that the semen test was actually a test for something called prosthetic-specific antigen, or PSA. In recent years, scientists have discovered the fluid isn't produced only by males. It's also in a female urine and other fluids. With bourgeois, they made up a lot of stuff. That fluid, the what are they? The, yeah, whatever that test was. Fluid. There was no, there was no sperm. Yeah, there was no semen. There was also no obvious damage to Jakiran's tissues in these areas. When you have a defendant of color accused of killing a kid. Um, and you say to the jury, and he might have done this, um, you know, and it's uh, an almost all white Texas jury. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, it, it plays so much into, um, in, into racial stereotypes and bigotry that when, when you see stuff like that gratuitously being put in there, it's overkill uh, and it's almost always false. Attorneys are also skeptical of the lack of evidence to back up the government's theory of how Bourgeois caused Jacaron's death. If he had smashed her head um, against the car, then why were there no outward manifestations of that? Why was there no blood in the car? But that's how they got the murder to occur on federal lands, which gave them the jurisdiction. It may not have been a murder uh, in the first place, um, that's not, not to say that he didn't inflict injuries that caused her death. Um, I mean, I don't know whether he did or he didn't, but but it pretty pretty clearly was not a murder. And that's in addition to the fact that he was intellectually disabled, uh, and they killed him um, without um, any determination of that fact. You have from the outset, you've got a manipulation of the judicial process. I mean, all these things should have been prosecuted but they're not federal crimes. Still, even at the federal level, the local culture seeps in. Uh, they're responsible for more than a third of the entire federal death row. Uh, so you're talking about the geographic politicization uh, of the federal death penalty. Uh, and what constitutes a capital, uh, federal capital crime 
uh, in Texas is very different from what would constitute a federal capital crime if it happened in uh, Pennsylvania New or New Jersey. Bourgeois fits in the category of someone who might be framed. That's what his daughter thinks. I just can't wait for it to be more people like that knows about this injustice. We need an army to actually promote change. So I'm just hoping that we have the strength to continue fighting. I mean, that's all we can do right now. Alfred Bourgeois' daughter, Bethany George, is convinced he's innocent. She was supposed to be on the trip with Jacaron. Um, something that so many people don't know. And it's relevant because he would not have invited me on that truck if he was abusing a child. It just would not have happened. Um, a month later, my father was supposed to bring me to college to start my freshman year. Um, he was going to use his the trailer, the truck trailer, to pack all my belongings and bring them to the university. It, it was just an easier way to do things. Obviously, that never happened. Uh, but we were making plans for all of those things, plans for um, the trip to school, plans for a family trip. And when I told my mother about the trip, she was really excited and she keeps a calendar. So she looked on the calendar and she noticed that I had a dental appointment. And because of that dental appointment, I could not go on the truck with my father. The next day, this was the day of my high school graduation, we were having conversations. May 24th, 2002 was my high school graduation in which my father came to see me. And he also brought two of my sisters, the six-year-old sister, Alfredicia, and he brought Jacaron, my two-year-old sister, who died. And Jacaron was completely unharmed. She was running around. She was playing in my mother's yard. They got to our home maybe around 11 in the morning. We spent the entire day together. And my father, during this time, he and my mother had a conversation in which he shared with my mother that he was going to be divorcing his wife and that she was not happy about it. Bethany and Bourgeois' wife, Robin, didn't get along. His wife did not treat me the best throughout their relationship. For me, it's easy because I know what this person did to me, like horrible, unspeakable things. I know what she's done to me. The rest of the world doesn't know because I was never given the opportunity to share, the, share this with them during my father's trial, along with so many other individuals. Robin ended up testifying against Bourgeois. She declined an interview request. And this was again the same day, May twenty fourth. Yeah, that's May twenty fourth. So it was the graduate. We, he came early, ten a.m. Played the kids played. They ate. My graduation maybe was around the evening time. They went to the graduation. Several people at the graduation interacted with my sister. No one seen signs of abuse at all. Um, then after the graduation, he told me. He said, "I'm so proud of you. We're gonna go back to your mother's house." I want you to look in the phone book because there was no get on the phone and search restaurants nearby. You know, it's a phone book during this time. So um, get on the phone book, pick whatever restaurant I wanted. And he tr whatever one, no matter how expensive, that was the gift. Me and my sisters, you know, um, just a good person. Just, just always trying to give his kids the world. Afterwards is when the call took place, maybe a couple days later is when he called me. He said, you know, I really, we have Jacaron now. I really want all the girls to see the world. I want to do a trip before you start college. You know, let's travel. Where, where do you want to go? And that's where the trip conversation came in. We were all excited, like I shared with you guys. Um, it never happened because I had a dental appointment. And because of this, 
that's the reason that he took my stepmother on the truck with him because there was no way that he'd be able to drive and watch these three girls at the same time. So she ended up going on the truck. Would you have gone on the trip? Would you have gone with your stepmother no, on the trip? No, that, that was the agreement. I told him I'm completely okay with that. Yes, that would be wonderful. My only rule is she cannot be there. Bourgeois only learned of his daughter Jacaran weeks earlier. According to friends and family, he celebrated the news. He threw a party on May 20th, 2002, which I was at because it was my party as well. It was a graduation party, a christening, welcoming Jacaran to the family, and a party for his one-year-old infant daughter. Everyone interacted with Jacaran. She looked fine um, running around. I've known my father for 17 years until this happened. He was taken away from me because of this. I loved my father, and aside from his wife, we had a wonderful relationship. Bethany says her father brought Jacaran home to Louisiana before the group headed out for delivery to Corpus Christi, Texas. I received a call one day, just I was thinking it was him, it was not, and it was my cousin, and my cousin actually told me, he said, did you see the news? And I'm like, what do you mean, the news? No, I didn't see it, and they're like, your dad's arrested. He killed your sister. And I'm like, oh my God, what do you, he killed my sister. Like, I could not believe it. So when I got the call from my cousin, when they told, when he told me what had happened, I fell to the floor and I just, I couldn't speak. I'm so distressed about it all. Just so distraught, confused. Just, just, I, I just did not understand. It just seemed impossible to me, like a, a nightmare, just something that just, they had to have gone wrong. There is no way possible this man could have done the things that you guys are accusing him of. And I wanted to share with them who my stepmother was. I wanted them to know the type of individual she was and all the horrible things she had done to me. Um, I was not the only person asked to testify. My father's best friend was asked, brothers, sisters, cousins, nieces, several employers, several people. We meet my father's attorneys discuss everything that's gonna that's gonna take place and um I just tell them you know how excited I am to testify in his defense the day of the trial I walk in the courtroom and I see my father there on the stand I remember looking at my father and I just broke down. I mean, my, my heart dropped and I remember he looked my way and he made me a sign not to cry and, and he winked at me as to symbolize everything is going to be okay. Like, I'm innocent, you have nothing to worry about and he gave me a thumbs up. Started crying a little more. The prosecutor looks at me and she whispers and she points at me and then someone, a court official, I'm not sure what position they were, approaches me and they say, hey, you're showing too much emotion and the jury, you're gonna influence the jury is what they told me. The jury should not see emotion. And they asked me to leave the courtroom, to leave the courtroom during that. So I go and I speak to my father's attorneys and I'm like, well, people are gonna hear horrible things about him. The jury's gonna hear that. Well, I'm his daughter, why can't I cry? Well, that's not fair. That's when his attorneys tell me that I'm not gonna be used to testify in his defense. So. At this point, I'm angry because I don't understand why. In court, Bethany's other sister, Robin's daughter, testified against her father, and her mother told Bethany that Bourgeois had been abusive. In the back of my mind, I was still like, God, I don't know, but I'm going to be honest, I just kind of 
suppressed it. It's been affecting me for so many years of my life. I just wanted to be past it, you know, and I just didn't want to think about it anymore. So I took, I, I listened to what she said and I just didn't think about it. I didn't want to talk about my dad anymore. It was too painful. I didn't want to talk about her mother. I just didn't want to bring up any, any of this until Victor sent those legal documentations. Victor Abreu, Bourgeois' attorney, passed along court documents. I heard from my father. I heard his side. He, he told me, and I still wasn't sure, I wanted to see the legal documentation. That's what mattered to me, the legal documentation. And when I saw it, that changed everything, especially Alfredicia's testimony. And the reason that it changed everything is because when this first happened and the FBI took her into custody, when her sister, my Jacaren, first died, Alfredicia stated that her father did not harm Jacaren. She also stated that her mother came up with an idea because she was afraid of going to jail to say that Jacaren fell out of the truck because they, her mother did not want them to be falsely accused for something that they did not do. That's what Alfredicia told multiple people, several people, countless people. All these terrible things say that she's saying about my father, she saw him bang my sister's head against the window. None of that was said until a year later after she was living with her mother for a year and speaking with the prosecution, only the prosecution, for an entire year. It's not clear exactly what happened in those two years, but the child's testimony focused on Bourgeois and the things she says she witnessed. After the trial, when this happened, she was, I think, eight years old, and her mother kept me away from her intentionally until she was 14 years old. I looked for her for years because I love my sister. I really, really, I've always loved her. I still love her, you know, even, even though she wants nothing to do with me because obviously this is her mother. So um, her mother kept her away from me, and when we reconnected, I found her on Facebook, and 2009, she actually came to stay with us for a couple of weeks, and we discussed this situation um, in which she told me, you know, I saw my dad abuse our sister, and, you know, and I saw him make her drink urine. Those are the two things that she told me. Oh, yeah, and you know, another thing my dad did tell me that, so during the last call, he told me not to trust my sister, Alfred She said, Beth, I know she's your sister, but don't trust Alfredicia. Don't trust. And I'm like, and you know, I kind of got offended when he told that to me because I'm like, man, this is like your daughter. Like she was a child, you know, she was young. Like, what do you mean don't trust her? She was only six and a half years old. Like I didn't understand why he would say something like that until I read those testimonies. It just, it all started making perfect sense. Starting a few months after the execution, I've watched as Bethany struggled to contact journalists and crime experts to look into her dad's case, but few seem interested. Proving Bourgeois' guilt or innocence is far beyond the scope of this podcast. But we did check with people in Bourgeois' life, inside and outside the prison. Here's what some of them had to say, with the caveat that most people who maintain he's guilty didn't want to talk. It's Andrea Dagri, half-sister. He was always a kind-hearted person to me. We got along well. Um, it was times where, you know, I feel I needed a brotherly person and he was always there for me. We never had any bad times. It happened I was in Louisiana visiting for the summer. So it shocked me because I'm like, that's not him 
I knew he loved his kids. That's, he always talked about his kids, always did stuff with his kids. So it was kind of mind baffling, you know, for me to believe that because I've never seen that side of him. My brother was, the, just bad to say, but the ladies' man. He had the girlfriends and stuff, but he was always proud about having kids. I'm Nicole Marie Ferdinand. I'm a cashier at the hair store in Hair World. He was like a second dad to me. Um, after my dad had got you know, killed, he took the place of my uncle and the dad to warn me. And uh, I used to go with him on his trips, like when he was driving trucks. I have been in almost 50 states with him coming up as a child because he used to take me and some of my other cousins too on the trip with him. Disneyland, went to some of the museums and stuff like that. I knew he didn't do that because I'm saying he was very, a very old protective dad, uncle, and that he was that type of person to do anything like that, but not the one that I knew because he was just so protective of us and his children. So I always knew that he was innocent, ma'am. My name is Cheryl Gray Lassane, and I work for Napa Auto Parts Store. Alfred was my first boyfriend, and he would always bring the baby girl, Alfredisha. I love to see how his, he was interacting with her. When she would see him, her face would light up, and he would leave her with me sometimes to watch her while they were on the road together. It was something to see because you never hardly see men take time out to be with their children, especially black men. Take their children on the road and spend time with them like that. When I first heard it, I was, I was like, that can't be true. I said, because I've seen actually how he was with his child and I've never seen bruises on her or, or nothing wrong with her. I said, there's, there's no way that they claim that he did what they claimed that he did. His thing was, he didn't want to have her in jail and then his children would be without a mother. But in the long run, he actually sealed his own fate because she turned on him. I didn't believe the story that went down that he killed his own baby. Because there's no way in the world I would believe that because like I said, I seen them together. Okay, my full name is Anita Roberts Ferdinand and I am a renal registered dietitian Alfred was my brother-in-law. Um, I would say that he was kind. He would give his shirt off his back if you needed it. He just, he was good. He invited, he liked to give functions. He invited the family over, he used to bear gifts around the holidays. And like I said, I never saw him even curse a child or yell at a child or be abusive. I've never seen that. But I I would like to clear his name because I really don't think he was a rapist and he was abusive toward his children. At least he did not show any of those signs to me. I have graduate students. I've graduated MSCs and PhD and I publish uh, scientific articles on brain damage, and I do autopsy and biopsy pathology here at this hospital. Roland Auer is a neuropathologist and neuroscientist who reviewed Jacaran's medical records for Bourgeois' legal team.
And uh, I have real trouble saying no if I smell an injustice. So I, I said yes. Yeah, I, uh, I was able to review the autopsy slides of the brain. And I, I couldn't get the lungs because she collapsed. And often you, you have syncope or collapse from a cardiopulmonary cause. Our thinks Jacaran's death was most likely an accident. Well, the conclusion is based on the weather. I got the weather reports. It was very hot and she was dehydrated. Some of the features of the case were um, the truck trip uh, with temperatures of not just 89 and, and 85 in Galveston, but up to 107 in uh, Wilcox, Arizona, and 108 uh, the next day, uh, June 23rd in Wilcox, Arizona. So when you're assessing dehydration, you have to assess um, the history as well, which was uh, a trip, which was a combined trip of working and holidaying with mm -hmm. father and sibling and stepmother. And it was a work and Gulf of Mexico at, and Pacific trip. And there were hot days, very hot days. So that was part of it. And the uh, autopsy photos, the histology, the history, the tumble out of the seat, all of that has to be assessed. You can't just look under the microscope and make an, a, a conclusion based on one finding. You have to put the whole picture together. And the picture, the conclusion you're asking me is that she was uh, dehydrated. Yeah, so uh, here is her called the superior sagittal sinus. It runs right at the top of your head. Uh -huh. And all the venous blood from your brain goes out. The blue is the dura, durable, dura cell battery, the, the fibrous tissue. It's very firm. Mm -hmm. And then this clot is almost occluding the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, when we shrink tissue, it goes with formalin shrinks. It's probably occluding the superior sagittal sinus, which is this area I keep pointing to. So she has venous occlusion due to dehydration and the hot weather that I just mentioned. So there is a medical illness here, quite definitely. Her skull, her skull is completely atraumatic. There is no evidence of uh, trauma. So you can see there are no fractures. It's glistening, it's beautiful. And the child is beautiful as well. There are no beatings and there's no evidence of child abuse here. That's my conclusion. I, I'm not sure she didn't tumble because she had uh, a pneumonia. A lot of people fall when they mm -hmm. have pneumonia, especially toddlers, but even adults. I can only say what I'm sure of, and I'm sure she was dehydrated with those temperatures and with that thrombosis. And this isn't a small cortical vein. This is the whole thing. All the blood coming out of the brain goes out through the sinuses, and it goes across through these bridging veins and, and into the uh, spirosagittal sinus, the Amazon of the drainage area of Brazil, if you like. Put your finger on one thing, and isolation is never a good idea because the whole picture is is what we need here to explain things. In this case, we have engulfment. She en she gulped or engulfed a stomach full right. of seawater. And that mm -hmm. came out of her mouth when she was in the truck mm -hmm. and uh, sort of oozed out of her mouth. And she wasn't very conscious at that time. And she had sodium levels, which were quite high. And we have hypernatremic or high sodium dehydration and uh, engulfing of seawater. That's significant. That's medical illness. It's hard thing to make up that the specific uh, engulfment and returning from the shore 
and uh, sleeping it off in the truck with uh, seawater coming out of the mouth and high sodium levels and thrombosis. You fit mm -hmm. it all together. You can't just look at one item in isolation. Yeah. We always have to remember we weren't there. We don't know what happened for sure. But putting the picture together, it sounds like dehydration, play on the beach, coral engulfing water, high sodium, superior sagittal sinus thrombosis. Yeah, accident and illness, two classes of death that are often misdiagnosed as murder by presumptive presumptions and prejudices against people. It's highly likely this was an accident or she had a tumble. And this has become a murder for which someone was killed. Very serious overreach, I think. Pretty sure about that with the medical illness that I was able to uncover. I, I, I want to mention, I think this is an, a miscarriage of justice. And that day in, in December, I mark it on my calendar because I failed. Bethany shared recordings of some of her and her father's last conversations including audio of saying hello to his first granddaughter. Hello? His grandpa, how you doing? Say hello. Hello. Hello, how you doing? How old you are? How old you are? Bye. And the last time the sisters ever got to talk to their dad. Now guys, the phone's probably, it hangs up every, we got about 10 seconds. There's anything anybody wants to say before it hangs up. Five seconds. Four. Love you. Love you. Dad. The bourgeois execution was in December 2020, at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Even in states that regularly execute people, such as Texas, the authorities shut down death rows and postponed executions. Attorneys for the people facing executions argued that it wasn't safe to bring people inside a prison. The government often responded to claims with examples of the efforts they were making to keep people safe. But during executions, the media witnesses observed that the executioners often weren't even wearing masks. Here's me venting to an attorney right after the bourgeois execution. They keep saying in court, like, oh, everyone's wearing masks on these precautions. The people involved who are standing there are not wearing masks. And it's just, are they fucking trolling us here? Like, they're telling the courts that, like, they're doing all these things. And then, in, like, hey, journalists, like, look, I'm not wearing a fucking mask. Hi there. How's it going? Good. I'm sorry. I'm just hitting send on this email. Yeah, no worries. I'm just going to go. Okay, great. Cassandra Stubbs is an attorney for the ACLU's Death Penalty Project. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't have much time either. Um, but I just wanted to touch base before two executions that are this week. Ahead of the December executions, the ACLU sued the U.S. Justice Department and obtained data about the impact of COVID-19 within the prison. There have been a number of developments this week. Uh, most have come in the context of the Smith versus Barr, which is the case um, about whether holding executions in a federal prison with thousands of prisoners at the height of a pandemic, whether that jeopardizes their health and violation and shows deliberate indifference. And in the context of that case, um, the government had made some footnote uh, that they had someone from the team, from the execution team, had tested positive. And, and the lawyers really brought that 
to the forefront of their papers and said, you know, they're not even telling us how many. Um, and then the government made what I think is just really a remarkable disclosure, which is now with over 300 prisoners who have COVID-19 at the Terre Haute prison, they're now admitting that eight of their 40 person execution team were tested. Those eight tested positive for COVID. Two of them still have COVID. And then five of the people who tested positive for COVID, and they do not say that those individuals have had a negative test. They just say that those five individuals tested positive and they're planning to come back this week to carry out two more executions. And combined with what we saw too about, um, about mask wearing, I mean, their, their frontline defense for why they should be able to carry out these executions without jeopardizing other people's health and safety has been that they're gonna wear masks. And, and really what we saw is that their own contact tracing documents show that when they interview the staff who test positive for COVID, the staff describe not wearing masks. They, de they describe a culture where mask wearing is not required. And so we see this huge mixing of, of staff without uh, wearing masks inside what we know is the most dangerous location in America, inside prisons. Um, and then we see in this really, really troubling declaration from Rick Winter that he personally observed the executioners remove their masks. They lowered their masks so that they could quote unquote be heard better. Rick Winter is a regional counsel for the U.S. Prison Bureau. You know, during the execution, inside what we know is a suffocatingly small building, you know, where social distancing is very, very difficult, where, um, you know, we requested information about the ventilation, and we know the ventilation system is decades old. I mean, th these, every risk factor that, that the government could do something to, to, to minimize, we see no assurances that they've done so, and, and really just the opposite. Um, so I, I think this is just kind of breathtaking in the recklessness of, of the, how the government's gone about carrying these out and, and just how um, unfair it is to the, to the people both who are forced to participate um, and those who, for professional reasons, choose to participate. Um, um, and I think that, you know, one of the costs of how fast these executions have been scheduled is that courts are asking questions but not getting the answers because um, the government's saying we don't have time to answer them. But the reason why they don't have time to answer them is because they've set these so fast. Um, and, and so, you know, it feels to me like they are in some ways um, making it easier for themselves to violate the rights and the health and safety of Americans. Right. One of the pieces of information that we've been trying to get is the list of facilities. We know that one of the dangerous parts of this recipe that the plan that the BOP is following is that they're bringing staff in from a number of institutions. And so they were ordered by Monday, this past Monday, to produce a list of the institutions. And what they gave us was a totally redacted list of those institutions. You will see a huge number of those institutions have large and very troubling COVID outbreaks. Of course, you know, Terre Haute at this point has its own very large and troubling um, outbreak. And so I, you know, I, um, I fear for the safety of everyone who's, who's attending these executions. Yeah.
I, of course, am opposed to the death penalty, and I never think an execution is the right option. But, but individuals who believe in the death penalty, I, I have to assume that they're carrying it out because they think it's good for, for broader social goals. I mean, we know it's, it's not about the individual victims because so many of them have opposed these federal executions, and the government's gone forward anyway. So, it, and that's where, to me, I, it's, it's, it's just astounding that the government is going forward with these when there's no question that this kind of pace diminishes any chance that a case will be able to get actual justice in the sense of meaningful review in the courts. And also, at the same time, when it really risks in just such a profound way that eight of the 40 people, at least eight, we don't know about the other 32, how many of them have COVID. We know that they got COVID. We know that the prison has hundreds of cases of COVID. And this is all happening at a time when Indiana, like so many states, is in code red <laughs> in terms of there's no hospital beds. You know, your grandmother and my brother are both gonna be in trouble if they have to go to the hospital for a car accident, if they have to go to the hospital uh, because they need a, a, a surgery, because they have cancer. It, any of these reasons, hospital resources, which are so critical to the health and safety of the nation, are, are beyond strapped. And, and yet the federal government is willing to layer on additional cases and additional risk in a way that just is, is both astounding and profoundly troubling. The next month in January, days ahead of President Joe Biden's inauguration, Adam and I were in Terre Haute covering three more federal executions. Adam's just picked me up from the latest, a man named Corey Johnson, convicted of multiple drug-related murders in Virginia. Um, because uh, there are people chanting in the room for his witnesses, I guess, or his people. This one is, I, we think they're Wait, saying, I love you, Corey, I love you, You mean Corey. from the next room? Yeah. And you could hear them? Yeah. I didn't, holy shit. It barely, was really, barely. No, barely. You could barely right. But like, I've never heard any other commotion no. from any other room. During the execution, we could barely hear someone shouting at Johnson throughout the process. I thought the person was saying, we love you, Corey, but it wasn't clear. And then get this, after it was over, when they declared him dead, there's loud cheering and whistling and clapping from the, the other room. Holy shit. But this was very clear. As soon as Johnson was declared dead, an outburst from the other side of the building. Multiple people cheering, whistling, clapping. It was it was so different so, than any of the other ones. So so there were plenty of family here, but something like but that. But none of them none of them wanted to talk because right. I thought like by the law of fucking averages. Yeah, exactly. Seven that's seven what, victims. That's what I was thinking. I was like, did they right. tell all of them? Because right. Yeah, exactly. Seven victims, you'd think that, like, at least one family member would say, yeah, I want to, you know, it's your only, one only chance to, like, say that my loved one's been avenged or something like that, you yeah. know? And, well, we were driving to an area near the prison where protesters tended to gather. Jesus, dude. I mean, dude, even cannot believe, I mean, so it was just a fucking shit show, basically, sounds like. Yeah, every aspect of it was fucking so from start, so like Something else that stood out, the person reading the execution notice to Corey did so in this oddly oh animated voice. So loud and like, just... Jesus. Like it was some kind of performance. Oh Corey Johnson, you're here for blah, blah, blah. Just like, so loud and like, just... Everything about that was... Are you okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. good, I'm shocked. I, 
Aside from the shouting and commotion, the rest of the execution appeared to go fairly smoothly. I don't think he didn't ride around or, you know, everything else that was just incredibly disturbing. Corey Johnson was the second person after Alfred Bourgeois whose attorneys presented evidence he was intellectually disabled. He was like giggling at like a point. So I, just I wanted to ask Johnson's spiritual advisor what happened in there. Yeah, I talked to Bill and just, I can't believe that that person knew he's being executed. I mean, I just, I don't understand at all. Like Bill said he was talking to him about it and everything. Like, what, like about what, what were they saying? Like, what was he saying? Um, I gotta know, I mean like, oh my God. I don't know what else to say other than like, like there's no way he was, I don't know, man. He, like, they asked him, do you have any last words? He's like, oh, I'm okay. Like, just, you know. He seemed so totally at peace that some of the media witnesses wondered if he was aware he was being executed at all. Hey, Bill. Hello. Reverend Bill Breeden served as Johnson's spiritual advisor. I got a headache from hell, but no. He addressed a small group of reporters standing outside. I've just witnessed the most unimaginable cold-blooded premeditated murder. I can't imagine anything worse. Clinical. From one room you have a family saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. From another room you have laughing, clapping. The families of Corey's victims weren't there, but Reverend Breeden read Corey's apology to us. I have copies of this I'll give to anyone who wants one. I want to say that I'm sorry for my crimes. I wanted to say that to the families who were victimized by my actions. And I want these names to be remembered. Lewis Johnson, Anthony Carter, Dorothy Armstrong, Curtis Thorne, Linwood Childs, Peyton Johnson, Bobby Long, his victims. I would have said I was sorry before, but I didn't know how. I hope you will find peace. To my family, I have always loved you, and your love has made me real. On the streets, I was looking for shortcuts. I had some good role models. I was sidetracking. I was blind and stupid. I am not the same man that I was. To the staff of the school, that's death row, thank you. You have been kind. The pizza and strawberry shake were wonderful, but I didn't get my jelly-filled donuts that I ordered. What's with that? This should be fixed. <laughs> thanks to the chaplain who has been kind. Thanks for my legal team who has been more than lawyers. They've been friends. And thanks to my minister. I'm okay. I'm at peace. So Corey went out being loved. He went out being very real. And I was honored to be there, but I was also ashamed to be there because this is done with my taxes. This is done with my money. And it's cold-blooded. You know, Camus was exactly right. You cannot imagine a more cold-blooded, premeditated murder than to hold a man in a solitary cell for years and take him out on a certain date and kill him on a certain time. So that's that's a wrap. I, I don't, I, I need to go get a shot of scotch or something, you know. It's just, uh, it's too much. Thank you. I asked Reverend Breeden the question that was on a lot of the media witnesses' minds. I'm not sure how to ask this. Yeah. Did he know what was going on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he knew precisely for, for quite a long time. 
Do you yeah. understand why I'm asking that? Sure. Yeah, he was very calm. He was extremely calm. Uh, and uh, at the end of the, as he was dying, which took quite a while, there was laughing and clapping from the room, and I stayed in the room. I said, it's kind of strange to hear laughing when someone's being killed, isn't it? They didn't respond. When I finished, I turned to them. I said, I would be remiss as a minister if I did not advise you to find another line of work before you lose your souls. And that's when the leader called to remove the MRR. Reverend Breeden held something back from the crowd that day. He says that right as the drugs began flowing, Johnson told him he was in pain. And medical records we obtained more than a year later could explain why. Characterized as severe pulmonary edema, like you said, fluid all the way up the airway into the mouth. Despite appearances, and Johnson really did appear to just drift off. Well, I mean, it couldn't have been better. It could only have been worse. A violent reaction was occurring inside his body. And so that confirms what the prisoners were saying, that this is happening. I mean, we know it is. Coming up on the final episode of Rush to Kill. It was there in the back of his throat uh, with fluid filling up, you know, and pouring out of his mouth. The thought crossing my mind, they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him, this beautiful human being, and they're going to kill him. What do they get out of it? Life is filled with decisions. Decisions to do right and decisions to do wrong. This episode was produced by Sarah Whitmire and me, George Hale, with help from Martha Abraham and Kaylee Manier. Adam Pinsker, Kayan Tara, and Kathy Knapp contributed reporting. Special thanks to Graham Smith, Meg Anderson, and NPR Content Development. More information about the project is available at wfiu.org slash rush to kill.